the really transformative version of certainly nutrition for growth is a set of commitments identified by high burden countries that then leverage support commitments from everybody else so that it becomes what we have all wanted a lot of these conversations to be, which is nationally owned and nationally led processes, but for real, not, not just aspirationally, but in practice. This is an ENN podcast on child wasting to complement Field Exchange 65, ENN's online and print publication released in June 2021. Hello, my name is Marie McGrath. I'm one of the technical directors at the Emergency Nutrition Network and I'm Field Exchange co-editor. And in July 2020, the Field Exchange team hosted a webinar that appraised the Global Action Plan on Child Wasting Framework based on reflections within the 60th edition of Field Exchange, which focus on the continuity of care for treatment of children with wasting. We were joined by key representatives from UNICEF, WFP, WHO, FAO and UNHCR to contribute to a great conversation and share their plans in the development and finalisation of the GAP. Since then, there have been quite a few different developments and initiatives. And so we thought, why not have a conversation with Saul Guerrero, Senior Nutrition Advisor, Emergency Nutrition at UNICEF, to hear more. Saul has led on much of the work related to the GAP and UNICEF's strategic direction on the management of wasting working very closely with UN sister agencies, particularly WFP and WHO. Given the recent launch of UNICEF's nutrition strategy, 2020 to 2030, this seemed particularly good timing for catch up on these and any other nuggets that UNICEF are involved in around the wasting agenda. So welcome, Saul. Hi, Marie. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. So let's kick off. It's, it's probably easiest to start where we left off at the FEC 60 GAP webinar. There were immediate plans to operationalize the gap on child wasting through the development of a country roadmap based on country case studies. Could you share where we're up to on all of this? Indeed, we, we began that journey to try to operationalize the gap, I think as early as April 2020, just shortly after the release of the, the gap framework. We initiated dialogue with 23 potential front-runner countries. Those countries were selected on the basis of a combination of two factors. One, where you know, many of the children with wasting live, but also countries where we had seen over the years various levels of, of commitment and leadership to, to try to accelerate progress. So those 23 countries were really countries from around the world, from Haiti to India, and really covering a, a range of developmental and, and humanitarian contexts. And we started uh, by engaging national authorities in those countries, as well as existing platforms to try to, to have these conversations in country through existing mechanisms and processes rather than, than creating our own. We spent there for much of 2020 really bringing all of those conversations together and, and give, using the, the, the four outcomes that you described as, as the focus of those conversations and really asking national governments, I guess, a couple of really specific questions. Number one, what would be the, the level of ambition that you would like to see uh, happening in these four outcome areas over the next five years or so. What are the, the specific geographical priority areas that where you know that we are going to have to focus on if we want to move the needle in your respective countries? 
And then finally, what are, what are the activities or the actions that need to be taken and what are the target populations that need to be uh, reached with these priority actions in those geographical priority areas in order to achieve these uh, targets and goals that you're setting for yourselves. So that has been, uh, as you can imagine, a, a, a complicated and process because there's a lot of decisions to, to, to be taken with a lot of different ministries and a lot of different stakeholders at country level. The process has taken taken longer than than we had originally anticipated for understandable reasons. And now we're finally getting to a point where we're starting to see the first sort of wave of countries that have completed that process altogether. So I think at the time that we're recording, there's about six countries that have already concluded that process and the governments have signed off on those roadmaps. And, and have started to share them with the resident coordinators of the country and, and, and all of the other partners. And, and we expect the large majority of the remaining 23 countries to be completed by the end of the summer at the latest. Ourselves, there's been an awful lot of work going on. And do you see that, is there going to be a timeline or um, a launch date for a full gap on, on child wasting? Yeah, so what we're trying to do is also recognize that 2021 is a particular year in offering us a couple of important events and moments in the, in the, in the year. On the one hand, there's a food system summit, and on the other, at the tail end of the year, there's a nutrition for growth summit. And what we're trying to do is rather than create a, a space for a launch of, of the GAR roadmaps as a standalone event, is really to ask ourselves the question, what can we do to use a lot of these roadmaps to feed into those conversations, right? What we want in an ideal world to see happening is the roadmaps being identified as, as a potential game changer by virtue of the fact that not only they're dealing with, with wasting, but they're dealing with wasting as a multi-systemic issue that, that requires multi-systemic responses. And that for the first time, we've got such responses being developed by, by countries, for countries. And then between the Food System Summit and, and the Nutrition for Growth Summit, really embark on a process of showcasing more specifically, the commitments that have been made by these countries, as well as leveraging additional commitments and support from different partners at a national and global level in support of this uh, national aspiration. So over time, what I think you're going to see happening starting in the next couple of weeks is us giving more visibility to the, to the roadmaps that have been finalized. So you will see it in the childwasting.org website. You will start seeing a dashboard that will showcase all of the commitments, all the targets, all the, you know, the estimated costs for each of the countries that is finalized. So if you go there in two weeks, you might see four countries. But if you go there in six weeks, you might see six countries. And if you go there in two months, you might see 10 countries. And so that way, it's a, it's a sort of a, a real-time picture of where we are. And that ultimately, as I said, by the end of the summer, you would see all of that information being publicly available and already being positioned within the conversations of the Food Systems Summit and the Nutrition for Growth Summit with an eye on, and, and that's been a conversation that we have been having with, with a number of partners and the government of Japan really seeing Nutrition for Growth as a moment where all of those commitments in the roadmaps are showcased and new commitments to support the roadmaps are also leveraged. Fantastic, so it looks like 2021 is going to be a busy year. Staying with the gap, last year, and when we reflected on the priority actions that we identified coming out of the Field Exchange 60 editorial comment on the gap on child wasting, we felt there were several areas that needed further elaboration or details. And it'd be great to have a bit of an update on those two. One of them was the need for an independent accountability mechanism for the UN-led 
gap. Where is that up to? So I think that there's two answers to that question. The first is, I think, a national level question. The accountability for the commitments being made by the national governments with the support of UN and other partners is ultimately a national accountability question. So our number one priority upon finalizing these roadmaps is to have that conversation with the national government about how are we going to track progress against these commitments? Are sort of the information systems in place to be able to tell us whether or not over the next few years we're moving in the right direction? If it's financial resources, what, you know, what is that going to look like? And so, for example, one of the things that, that is going to start happening the moment that the, the, each country completes their roadmap is we are calling and supporting the implementation of finance roundtables in these countries to say what is the financial status considering domestic resources that are available or can be made available, as well as external resources that are available or can be made available, if only to identify where the gaps are within within those resources. Simultaneously at a global level, we are creating a number of important conversations that will have as part of their their mandate overseeing and and ensuring that at a multi-country level, things are on track. And I think chief amongst those processes and systems is the creation of an action review panel on child wasting that UNICEF is co-chairing with with the UK government. The first meeting of this panel is scheduled to take place on May 26. That panel will really bring together UN agencies, some of our donor partners, national government, civil society, in an effort to also have that conversation at the most macro of levels once a year to look back and say, is the progress that we're uh, seeing as a result of the roadmaps really what what we needed it to be or what we were expecting it to be? And by virtue of being such a, a diverse group of, of, of agencies, we bring some of that uh, independence that, that I think that this conversation absolutely needs at a global level. Mm. Great update and really interesting that that two-pronged dimension of accountability. It, it speaks, I guess, as well to the real emphasis that you placed back then on how the country roadmap and country case studies would really inform what happens. The other area that there was a lot of discussion about was on ready-to-use therapeutic foods and supply chain systems for the delivery of, of nutrition products, with particular reference to the relative UN roles and responsibilities. Are there any developments on this front? There's two important things that, that I think your listeners would, would be most interested in knowing. The first, I, as many of them will know, was the partnership that was signed and agreed between UNICEF and WFP in the last couple of months. That partnership sort of reaffirmed the current arrangement that UNICEF will be continuing to lead the procurement of RUTF in all in all contexts, and that WFP will continue to lead on the procurement of supplementary foods like our USF and others in all contexts as they as they have done today. I think we both want to find a way of, of recognizing that, you know, we, we need to not only play to our strengths, but acknowledge that in different contexts, we, you know, different ad hoc opportunities might come up that will allow one another to support each other in different ways. But that for the most part, I think that the, the current arrangement is fit for purpose. It doesn't artificially or unnecessarily split a, a market. And, and that at the end of the day, the world is asking for less UN involvement. 
in the supply chain of our UTF, not more UN involvement. So we need to avoid arrangements that don't speak to that external pressure. But I think much more importantly, as part of the action review panel on child waste, and one of the recommendations that we anticipate will come out of is an, sort of an encouragement or a guidance to create a specific platform for dialogue on this. We've been working with our WHO in the last few weeks in crafting essentially a, a common strategy for the exploration of more cost-effective our, our UTF formulas, how we're going to generate that evidence together, and how we're then going to take proven alternatives to scale within the RUTF market and, and with an eye of what the role that WHO can and will play from a, from a formulation point of view and the role that UNICEF can play in also uh, market shaping and introducing new formulas. But I think that more broadly, we will work with others in giving people answers to some pretty fundamental questions like how much RUTF will be needed within a specific time period, let's say over the next year, how much resources have been made available domestically or globally to procure that kind of our UTF volume. And if if it's not sufficient to cover all the needs, what are the strategies that are currently being put in place by UNICEF and its partners to bridge that RUTF gap and you know give people a sense of where we anticipate you know, some of the challenges to be geographically and we're not, because at the end of the day, you, you cannot separate the question of supply chain from what formulas you're trying to put in the supply chain, as well as who is covering the cost of those products in the supply chain at a global level. That's a really interesting source. Could you speak a bit more to perhaps more of what you're doing with WHO? Because I understand that there is a lot more closer practical collaboration between UNICEF and WHO when it comes to the guideline on, on wasting that and how you're, you're working together in any formal or informal partnerships. Sure. I did the September last year, I believe it was that um, a partnership agreement was signed by our, our principals between WHO and UNICEF around collaboration in a range of areas, which included nutrition. So there is a, the sort of the RUTF conversation and really just recognizing that WHO has made it clear that there is an interest in, in expanding our understanding of different formulations, but we need to be more specific about what kind of evidence is needed from where. And once you procure, you secure that evidence, then what? And some of those answers are for WHO to articulate, but some of those answers are for UNICEF to articulate. And so rather than simply trying to sort of coordinate but do our own separate things, what we're saying, well, it's actually, why don't we go one step further and start providing a holistic set of answers about how this will play out? I think more broadly on the on the policy reform, we have been supporting the WHO team in um, ensuring that they have their, the capacities that they need at a global level to yeah to support and lead those processes, that they have some resources as well to carry out some of the, the reviews that need to be done in order to, to allow for those policy and, and guideline development processes to, to take place. So we have been supporting that process and, and working really closely behind the scenes in, in any way that, that we have been able to. And we're incredibly happy with how that collaboration is going. And I, and I would their venture that's always WHO. But there's also this recognition that updating the global normative guidance is only the first step, right? And, and if, if, if that's the commitment that WHO has, has given and, and made to the world that this update of the global guidance will occur by December this year, there's still this question of what happens in January next year onwards. And we have started to also map that out together and say, well, you know, much in the same way that 
WHO is our normative normative guidance agency. The reality as well is, is that the national updates, national guidance to reflect changes in normative guidance is a process where UNICEF at country level plays a really, really big role. So the question for us is how could we collaborate also at that level? How can we work to then review national guidance and to support governments in updating them whenever needed to reflect changes in the global normative guidance? I think overall, what that ensures that there is a commitment and a planning taking place right now to make sure that it cascades down properly and we see the the end game, not the updating of the the global uh, guidelines, but that the updating of the national guidelines. So by seeing the full picture of first doing the, the global update and then doing the national updates, we can offer a more holistic joined up sort of venture. And of course, that takes us into other areas like simplified approaches and you know, what do we feel it's okay to start getting behind jointly now? Like, for example, Family Mewag, I think that WHO recognizes that there is no, there's nothing preventing us from scaling that up because it's not normative guidance uh, change. And then what, what are we going to do to move the, the, the needle in other areas where I think we do want to give the normative process at a global level time to determine what the right recommendation is before we operationally move it forward. Mm, brilliant. Thank you, Saul. And it's really heartening to see this investment in, in terms of the uptake of guidelines at national level. As, and, and reflecting on our conversation so far, it's quite a job that UNICEF have taken on as the lead agency amongst the UN with oversight of wasting management. And I guess sometimes you have to be careful about what you wish for. Um, but it sounds like you're very much up for the job as an agency. And how is the gig shaping up at UNICEF in terms of capacity and resource to deliver on all of this? It's a big responsibility, but I also don't think that we have hesitated for a moment in saying, what will it take for us to to deliver on that responsibility rather than do we have what it takes, right? It's, it's a, it's a mm. question of how we do it rather than if we do it. I think it's been a complicated year I think for anything other than COVID, because it's it's difficult to right to get institutional priority going into into anything other than the, the COVID priorities, which is entirely understandable. And I think that that applies to national governments and it applies to many of our partners and donors. So it hasn't been your usual year to really see what we can do in in the in the particular wasting space. What I would say is that some things that I think listeners would find helpful in terms of the the science of where UNICEF's sort of commitment to the, this issue, what it means in practice is, on the one hand, I think increasingly we are seeing more of the the, the sort of the UNICEF thought leadership, including many of our, our sort of senior advisors channeled in this direction. So the wasting is not just now the, you know, the responsibility of, of those of us who are tasked with treating it, but also the responsibility of the wider team that are tasked with preventing it. And you see that more and more in the way that the UNICEF representation on the issue looks like. It's not just the usual suspects. That's a good sign is, is that it's all hands on deck. We're also about to release our No Time to Waste, which is sort of our institutional plan on accelerating progress on the prevention, early detection, and treatment of child waste to offer really a more holistic picture of how does all of our preventative work and our detection and treatment work all come together in a, in a, in a simpler and, and more coherent narrative. So that's really exciting to also see UNICEF issuing this at this time. And, and I think in general, also, we, we have been very fortunate that we have had great partners that have supported us in ensuring that we have the necessary resources, be it at a global level, at a national level, at a regional level, to play that role. Is it enough? 
look, I, I think that it's an ethical question because there's so much to do. Right. And, and, and I think that, you know, sometimes when it comes to resources and capacities, yeah, sometimes more is more. And, but, but I would say that right now we are better placed. I'm more set up for success than we have ever been on this issue. So I'm, I'm confident that the world is getting the level of support that, that this requires in order to drive this agenda forward. It's all go. I'm, I'm delighted to see it soul. And indeed, in amongst all of this, um, we were delighted to see the new UNICEF nutrition strategy that was released back in December that takes you up to 2030. Could you give a brief overview of what is different about this strategy and what it will mean for UNICEF in terms of what you will work on and how? So it's a hugely important step in in our in our journey on nutrition, and certainly over the next decade, there's a number of things that I think are really important. On the one hand, you will have things like the conceptual framework, and and we offer not a conceptual framework anchored on how does malnutrition happen, but anchored on how does good nutrition happen. So many of the same ideas, but framed in a much more positive outcome oriented version of, of, of that framework. So that refresh feels really, really important um, because it's more about what people need to do rather than what people need to avoid seeing or happening. The strategy also has, you know, uh, offers a, what, what is a sort of a multi-systemic uh, perspective on how to address wasting that goes beyond the contributions that, for example, the health system has historically made towards nutrition, but what does food systems, what role do they play, what social protection systems, what wash systems offer, which I think is also really important that we recognize that nutrition will require a, uh, in, in our case, a whole of UNICEF approach is not just something that the nutrition section deal with, is is something that the nutrition section orchestrates, but that requires multiple um, parts of the house in the same ways that at country level it requires multiple mini- ministries working together. I also think that the nutrition strategy offers sort of some of the, the clearest messages around, for example, maternal nutrition, the health and nutrition of adolescent women and how important that is going to be in for UNICEF in moving forward, not just as a, as a means of preventing or improving child nutrition, but also in its own right, right? And, and, and how important that is for, for our agenda in moving forward, you know, the, the nutrition of school-age children as well and how important that uh, will be. And I think it highlights for the first time in a, in a really central way also all of our work on around overweight and obesity. So it really starts to say, well, our work on nutrition is not what it used to be, but also with a new lens of what do we think are going to be the new frontier on these issues in many different countries. So that strategy comes at the perfect time because, of course, we, we now need to start saying, well, what are our priorities in moving forward in a post-COVID world? Brilliant. Thank you, Saul. And I, and I think within your strategy as well, you're really focusing on the under twos rather than more broadly the under fives. Is that right? That's right. And, and you see that also very clearly articulated in the No Time to Waste document where we say that part of what we need to start confronting is that in a context of limited resources, we cannot focus on all children as if the risk of mortality uh, or the impact of episodes of malnutrition is the same because it's not. And in an ideal world, absolutely, we need to ensure good nutrition for all children in all contexts. But in the context of limited resources, the first question that we're asking ourselves programmatically is to say, have we reached optimum coverage of key nutritional services amongst the most vulnerable who are also the youngest before we start asking ourselves, how can we expand coverage to some of the other children who deserve it, but at a lesser risk, and therefore we can't afford to sort of reach 
once we have reached optimal coverage with the youngest one. Very good point, Saul. And, and I think it, it segues nicely into the next question. You'd be glad to hear I'm nearly done <laughs> in, in grilling you. But um, a question around the joint malnutrition estimates, which always make for sobering reading. And the, the recent joint malnutrition estimates have been released with estimated global burden of just over 45 million wasted children under five years. Um, and it's notable that we don't have trend data for wasting as the uh, conundrum of factoring in incident cases into global estimates has continued to elude us. However, I know you've been working on this for quite a while now at UNICEF, along with other partners, and we hear some guidance on this is imminent. Um, any good news to bring us on that front? Yeah, as you say, it's a, it's an important uh, unanswered question on multiple levels. So yes, we are, our goal is to release by the beginning of June at the latest, the guidance that we have been working on for much of the last year and a half, I think, or if not longer, on how countries can estimate or factor in incidence uh, rates in their own geographies. Because what we have found in a lot of the work that we have done is that a single global correction factor is not appropriate. It's been necessary as a as a way of finding a, a, a an easy-to-use way of incorporating incidents in our estimations of what is essentially an acute condition. But it's not, I mean, the more that we have triangulated that with multiple evidence, the more that we realize that there's too much of a range. And actually what countries really need is not an average correction factor, but what they need is a mechanism to estimate that locally based on their very specific realities. And I think we have found a, a relatively straightforward way in which program planners can do that locally and therefore generate a more accurate picture of the level of need or the estimated level of need in each context that factors in incidence. At a global level, that is made harder, but precisely by that same point. So what we're doing, and, and I think that the, the team working on the, on the joint malnutrition estimates has been quite frank and upfront about the fact that f that is an unfinished agenda, factoring in or updating wasting to allow for a trend line, which, which as you say, it's it's currently not presented and and it needs to be presented. It's 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 difficult to tell a story of whether or not we are on track to meet the WHA targets or the Sustainable Development Goal targets if we don't show annually a, a trend line. So I know that the JME team is is really keen to find a way of, of factoring that in uh, at a global level in a fairly structured way. The commitment I think that they have made is to really prioritize that if not ahead of next year's edition, then certainly for, you know, for, for the one after. I think that the big question will be, can we find a, a reliable method to do that? Recognizing as well that for many people, the JMEs are capture prevalence, right? Uh, you know, That's what they do for stunting is, is what they do for obesity, right? They capture prevalent picture rather than than incidents and therefore that raises questions as well as of you know should we be trying to find any seasonal for example variations in in some of these other nutrition indicators but regardless of where that conversation leads our, our commitment is to absolutely see incidents and trend lines for wasting uh, being available in the next editions of the jme because it's absolutely necessary finally you already mentioned some of the significant global events happening this year for nutrition in the form of the Food Systems Summit and the Nutrition for Growth Summit. From ENN's side, we're working closely with the senior leadership teams on both fronts to try and galvanise our technical communities together into a united, coherent front to speak with one powerful voice 
and look to really reset wasting in, in multiple minds. What commitments do you at UNICEF need coming out of Nutrition for Growth to catalyze what the UN is doing around the gap on child wasting and indeed much more besides? So I think the, fir- the first answer is we need Nutrition for Growth to be focused on scaling up essential nutrition actions. And that is the conversation that we have been having with the government of Japan to say 2021, the mindset of people this year isn't going to be on discussing every possible important issue on nutrition. It has to be about what is absolutely essential to do right now. So that's the first thing is is not to focus on what could be done on, on nutrition, is to focus on what must be done on nutrition today because we can be our worst enemies sometimes in terms of setting priorities for the nutrition community because we are unable to differentiate between the two. The second part of it, the really transformative version of certainly nutrition for growth is a set of commitments identified by high burden countries that then leverage support commitments from everybody else. So rather than a patchwork of different commitments by different stakeholders for different reasons in different places, to see a handful of countries making commitments about what they want to do more of, and that then being followed by commitments from UN agencies to say, yes, and in support of what you want to do in this country, we are going to do this. And then donor uh, and, and philanthropies and private sector and civil society saying, well, and in, you know, in light of what the government wants to do in these countries, this is what we're going to pledge in support of that. So that it becomes what we have all wanted a lot of these conversations to be, which is nationally owned and nationally led processes, but for real, not, not just aspirationally, but in practice. So, and the easiest way to do that is, as I said, by putting forward some of these commitments that are coming out of the gap roadmaps. And that's how we will be approaching 2021 from the perspective of national commitments and gap roadmap commitments. And in our dialogue and support for the Japanese government and others is with an eye on doing it that way. And I think that ultimately what we need to recognize is that once we get to nutrition for growth, what we're bound to realize is that there are contexts where we can make progress on these issues that there are national governments committed to making progress on these issues and prepared to put more on the table in order to achieve them, and a number of other partners, including UN agencies and UNICEF, willing to make that their agenda. And that will lead to the eventual conclusion of what is it that we are missing to really go all the way. And I hope that all the other partners will come through and help us identify whatever it is that we haven't been able to leverage in the lead up to Nutrition for Growth to make it a reality. Great. So, like, gosh, there's a lot in what you said there. And some of the things that jumped out at me as you were talking um, is less is more, which we're never so good at, um, country-led, be specific. We must do this and we can do this. And something that you mentioned earlier, it's not just the usual suspects that need to be involved. Would you agree? 100%. We need to uh, do that and absolutely diversify and bring in a new generation of partners in support of national governments. Well, I think that's me done. You'll be so glad to hear. But I was wondering if you have any final thoughts or reflections 
Well, I guess many of us have been working in this space for for quite some time. And, you know, over the years, we have seen moments of great excitement with, you know, the way things were going on the issue of wasting. And there have been moments of less happiness or, or more disappointment in terms of not being able to take this agenda as far as we can. But right now, for the first time, at least from my 20 years or so in, in this particular space, I see the perfect storm of variables really coming together in the right place at the right time, in the right way. From UN leadership being clear to there being platforms and spaces for transparent dialogue with our partners about you know whether what we're doing is sufficient and if not, how can we make it fit for purpose to seeing civil society also pushing an agenda to diversify and improve the way we do services on the ground to donors really coming together and trying to rally behind sort of common agendas and, and not just a scatter seed approach. But we all need to hold the line. There's always going to be a temptation to say, yes, but I want to do it slightly differently. And I think we need an ecosystem approach that acknowledges that everybody has agency in this and should continue to have agency on all this, but also an ecosystem approach that is ad- adopts a certain amount of responsibility. Responsibility, as I said before, for pulling in the same direction. We need to create the spaces for people to be part of decision-making about what direction that is. But once we agree on what direction that is, we need to stay the course. Because if we don't stay the course and if we don't set those priorities and then invest year after year and try to achieve those objectives, then we cannot turn around and wonder why are we still in the same place that we have always been. So let's start by coming up with all those common agendas and common priorities and then sticking with them for a while. And then we reassess. For me, in this perfect sort of combination of factors coming together, the one thing that we cannot guarantee is that we will stay the course after with whatever comes out of all these different initiatives. And that is the one vulnerability, but opportunity that I think we have to demonstrate that that we can all come together and achieve the things that need to be achieved. Brilliant. Thank you, Saul. A real call for, for commitment and to be in it for the long haul. Thank you so much for your time, Saul. I'm sure our listeners will have learned loads as I have and look forward to everything coming out. And let's see what 2021 brings us on the nutrition front. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Maria. It's a real pleasure. <laughs>